This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Chilly winds may blow, chilly winds they come and they go. Chilly winds may blow, oh, 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 and I don't know. Hello and welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on June 19th, 2014. My name is Zach. And I'm Andrew. This is episode 72 and we are discussing Pe- Peter. Pretty Maids. <laughs> Pretty Maids, All in a Row, directed by French filmmaker Roger Vadim and released by Metro-Golden-Mayer in 1971. So, Andy, let's get started. And uh, Pretty Maids, All in a Row, at sunny Oceanfront High School in California, all appears... Wait a minute. <laughs> let's wait, let me do this to start over again. If I forgot something, I apologize. Yeah, you forgot something. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> okay, <laughs> at sunny Oceanfront High School in California, all appears normal until... Student Ponce de Leon Harper discovers a dead cheerleader in the boys' lavatory. Soon, a police investigation is underway while the school guidance counselor and football coach, Tiger McDrew, mentors Ponce through his sexual anxiety with the help of substitute teacher Betty Smith, while spending his office hours seducing female members of the student body. However, as more and more young women start appearing dead all over campus, anyone can... (laughs) Sorry, some of these sentences make no sense. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start with that last sentence. Is that all right? Yeah. However, more and more young women start appearing dead all over campus, and all anyone can think about is, who will win the football game on Friday? So that's pretty made all in a row. Well, thanks for reading that. I apologize for it not that's being right. a, that's a that's more okay. concrete paragraph. I should have. I should have read it beforehand. So, I guess what, you know, this was a movie you selected for us the to talk about I, I selected yeah. i don't even remember the first time i heard about the film but once i first read about the film i knew i wanted to see it and it's it's surprising for a big name director a huge name writer gene ronberry wrote the script and pretty much an all-star cast it's not really the most well-known or even the most widely available film mm. so that's what kind of uh prevented me from seeing it for so long but when we were talking about all films we should do i was like oh we have to do this movie it seems like especially that this is something that would be universally discussed at least among film lovers of sorts yeah i know that's after i watched i kind of thought the same thing now we can point out that quentin tarantino loves the movie Mm -hmm. but other than him i can't really think of anyone else that really champions the film i will say i really liked the film i thought it was really funny the Acting from the cast, I mean, it's got a fantastic cast. Rock Hudson's the star, but it's also has Angie Dickinson, Telly Savalas, Keenan Wynn, uh, Roddy McDowell's in it, um, Scotty from Star Trek's in it. And uh, it's obviously well-made with Roger Vadim directing it. So it's kind of odd that it is kind of almost a forgotten film. Do you have any insight into why you think that may be? I actually don't, because uh, the concept of high school death the killing of students is probably more relevant now than it was then 
And I think even the uh, in the summary how we mentioned um, all anyone really seems to care about around the school is who's going to win the football game on Friday. I think even kind of fits into how school shootings are today. How it's just another occurrence. They don't seem to pack the same punch they used to. Yeah. So I even think that fits in with what's happening today. I guess you could say that it's, some of it's a little dated and kind of sexist in a way. But I think that goes I, I, I think that goes with the, the character of Tiger McDrew, which spoiler alert is the killer. And um I do uh, see him as uh the devil since the there's talk of Paradise Lost and he's mm-hmm. corrupting the student body. I really started thinking about, you know, why Milton's Paradise Lost comes up so much in the first third and felt to some extent it may narratively borrow from it. Well, if you remember uh, when Ponce de Leon <laughs> is at uh, Betty, Smith's house, Betty Smith's house the first time, where she's working for Tiger to help him with his sexual problem, when we cut back to him when he's watching television, the first time we see him, it's framed through the fire that's going in his fireplace, so he's surrounded by flames the first time we see him. Wearing a, a very, like, cultish kind of robe. robe. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> But even like you were saying that he's he's corrupting the student body, there's also this element of trying to rebel against education, like the, the tradition oh, yeah, yeah. of education Throughout. within the high school. And which is really surprising since Roger Vadim and Gene Roddenberry, I would think would be relatively uh, liberal, that in, the, in, the, in a way it's almost condemning the film. I, I don't want to say the film's condemning, but if we're positioning rock hudson's character as an evil influence and he's defying or trying to uh, defy um conservative values of high school then that's kind of odd that they went that way Mm. but i do think that's how this film does kind of play out yeah and i mean the other thing i was thinking about is that you know if he is being betrayed as satan you could look at his seducing of angie dickinson as like the serpent convincing her to bite the fruit which in this case is ponce you know yeah and in here it's it's different because it's kind of removed all the guilt from that because we're in a 70s context and the movie kind of seems to be suggesting that the high school is kind of a permissive society um the historical context of when this movie comes out and the fact that it's clearly kind of depicting a world that's in the midst of the sexual revolution. Yeah. But it's satirizing that. Oh, definitely. Especially with some of the dialogue. It's taking pleasure in being able to exist in that world. But, like, I've read some reviews where people talk about how this is a very, like, free love type of film. But Rock Hudson, who you would seem as like kind of the embodiment of that in some respects, but yes, he's sleeping with students, but then he also refuses to end his marriage. I was kind of curious, especially at the end, which I don't want to give too much away, but he does get away and his wife is able to get away with him. And I thought at that point is, did she know what he was doing the entire time? I mean, was she permissive in what he was doing, not only in killing these people but also what he was doing with all the 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 female students and if she knew was 
was she doing the same thing as well? And they just happen to have an open marriage, which mm-hmm. goes with kind of like the free love air of the film. When we do get some exposition to why he ends up killing someone, it's always that they want to be His exclusive <laughs> to him, right? Yeah. And he's not he's he not willing to do that. Yeah. I guess what you're saying is kind of interesting because essentially when he when they do have scenes of him describing his view on education, it seems like what he's teaching is just self expression. What that's what he believes education should be about. Yeah, well he's very against the like the regimented nature of education. Now I don't know how she would be able to like condone the murdering of the girls. Right. Yeah. I mean especially I guess if she knew about it, then why is he killing them? If she knows I'm sleeping with these people that's true. Yeah, that's true. Why would he feel the need to have to murder them? I agree with you. But at the same time, maybe it's not so much fear of his wife finding out, but maybe fear of the school finding out. That That's true as well, because clearly his position as an educator is very important to him. He has plans to yeah. become the principal. And having Ponce come back to be his vice principal yeah. after college. Yeah. I have to say, Rock Hudson is absolutely perfect. <laughs> Oh, he's great in the movie. I've never watched Macmillan and Wife. No. I don't know that much about, like, post-60s Rock Hudson's career. Other than Seconds, I can't really think of anything either. So it was it was interesting to kind of see him play in a comedic environment that wasn't safe, you know? Like, yeah. most of his comedies of the 60s are, like, his Doris Day movies. Right. It was co-starring mm-hmm. Tony Randall. Like, there's a certain atmosphere to those that they're very playful but they're very tame um, and they're not very subversive whereas this is incredibly subversive and his performance is incredibly subversive in a way it's like a piece of stunt casting yeah but if it was just pure stunt casting i don't know if the person would have been able to pull it off as well as he did right and and i agree and also i i kind of am hesitant to say that because at this point in his career he's not leading man material anymore at least like in big hollywood movies yeah yeah that's true and physically he's not in the best shape of his life either no but at the same time i mean there is still a certain amount of charisma and pull to him that i understand why all these girls in high school would be chasing after him yeah i mean he's very like animalistic and primal like his sexuality is um see to me the interesting thing about it being like a a sex comedy murder mystery is I don't think the movie is ever really all that interested in the murder mystery element. No, it's, yeah, it's really not. For instance, tell, all of Telly Savalas' scenes where the, the investigation is ongoing, Vadim is always cutting on a punchline that completely eliminates all the tension that he's built up yeah, to go to yeah. something comedic. Well, well, one interrogation scene just ends with the person he's interrogating laughing. Like, oh, he right. asks the person a question, and all they do is start laughing, and that's the end of the scene. No, I mean, the film is really more about the relationship of Tiger and Ponce de Leon, kind of him mentoring him to become him. I don't think that I was as aware of that until we got towards the end of the film. When Ponce becomes him at the end. I mean, yeah. But I'll be honest, going up to it, that's what I hoped would happen. Which is funny, since we know Tiger is a mur- murderer. I was rooting for him and kind of rooting for their friendship to remain intact. Well, that's why casting Rock Hudson is so genius, is because there's something very likable about Rock Hudson 
as it is where you want to root for him and it's it's hard because he's like you know the epitome of misogyny he's yeah. murdering these girls and he's taking advantage of everyone that comes into his path to one extent or another and he's teaching this kid to do the same thing exactly one well, john david carson who plays ponce de leon i think he's equally as good i agree and he's able to hold the scenes with both rock hudson and angie dickinson hold his own really well that i think that's a big part of why i was rooting for their friendship i like those two together i could have seen another movie with these two guys in it playing similar roles I actually, I I really appreciate the way that the movie treats Ponce de Leon. Now, firstly, do you have any idea why his name is Ponce de Leon? I have no clue. Other than he's, uh, you know, Ponce de Leon what, finds the Fountain of Youth, or that's what he's looking for. And since Tiger is trying to create a new Tiger with Ponce de Leon, he, it's almost like a Fountain of Youth sort of thing. Okay. Like he's creating a new young version of him. And Angie Dickinson, since she has the relationship with him, is also almost like a fountain of youth with her. Because she, at the end of the film, how she starts flirting with another student. And when we see her at the beginning of the movie, she's much more timid and she becomes more open at the end. She almost becomes younger herself as well through him. They both have a sexual awakening. It's Hers yeah, is just like a so, reawakening. So he's almost like, a, I guess, a fountain of youth for these two characters. Well, that that's better than what I thought. I just thought... Oh, he's discovering himself sexually? Ponce de Leon's discovered land. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because he's not initially introduced as Ponce de Leon. No, no. You kind of go for a little while in the movie not really knowing his name. Everyone just calls him Ponce. And I was like, what the hell could that be short for? (laughs) And then somebody says Ponce de Leon Harper. And I was like, what kind of name is that? Well, what makes the name even better? is the fact that that's not even his, his, that's not his full name. Harper's his last name. He's got such a, like, square last name. And this eccentric first name, Ponce de Leon. But yet no one in the film, like, really calls attention to it either. Like, nobody questions no. the name. Angie Dickinson, Rock Hudson, they totally sell calling him Ponce all Ponce, the time. Yeah. But I appreciate the treatment of him, especially in respects to, like, high school sex comedies, because I think a lot of times the central protagonist of those movies who's like a virgin is always at the expense of the audience for gags yeah and he's really not at all he yeah he they never betray his character for like cheap laughs i mean obviously he is put into very awkward and comedic scenarios the hot chocolate scene yeah or him sitting on the chocolate duck but those pay off i mean him sitting on the chocolate duck really those those gags are to pay off the scenes, because him dropping the hot chocolate is what causes her to kneel down and see that he has the erection. And him sitting on the chocolate duck gets his pants off. So they're all there for a reason. They're not just there for a cheap laugh, in a way. Yes, and I would say two-thirds of this film is from Ponce's perspective. Yeah. So I think even when those scenes are funny, they there is something very uncomfortable about them. And they're they're not really... Sorry. They're not really, uh, those are not huge comedic set pieces in any, any no. means. So, I actually, you know, for as funny as this movie was, and this was a movie I did laugh out loud at numerous times, I think it's more from, it, I think it has relatively clever dialogue. I agree too. <laughs> and <laughs> Great dialogue. Yeah, and I thought the movie was smart. And I understand Gene Ronberry wrote the film, so maybe that has a big part to it. I love the the line in the hallway where they, the guy goes, 
hey, football practice? Because we never practice on the day of a murder. <laughs> yeah. And that's just it. I mean, it is I mean, it is a really great film and I don't understand why it is almost like lost to time. Mm -mm. Especially because it's not like it should be obscure. I mean, you have big name talent involved both in front and behind the camera. Well, I could see how it's uh, would be obscure pre-internet. Um because yeah, it I can okay. MGM released it, but they released it as a time where MGM was like really struggling to find their place in the new Hollywood movement because yeah. this is all this is post Easy Rider, Bonnie and Clyde Mash, and most of those movies were coming from like Columbia and 20th Century Fox. I think Warner Brothers and Paramount started to do that stuff a little bit later, but yeah. At this time MGM has downsized and they're only making like five big movies and then they're giving a ton of stuff out to lower budget films. And then in 79 MGM collapses. So this is kind of born out of that and it's interesting cuz reading some interviews with Roger Vadim he talks about the fact that at the time that he was shooting this film this was the only movie that was being shot at MGM. So he he had carte blanche over everything that he wanted because he had complete creative control over the movie. Okay, I can see that. And he does he does talk about how like the studio nature of making films is just a cancerous bureaucracy, is what he says. He talks about specifically the the opening scenes with Ponce on the Vespa, how the studio budgeted two days to shoot those scenes and they wouldn't let him go out in his own car and just shoot him in the back <laughs> of the trunk. And so he had yeah. to like sneak away from the studio and do that with the actor. And they did, they got all those shots, you know, in half a day and they were done. He was just talking about the tedious nature of the way that MGM was still making movies is well, this is his only Hollywood film, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, cause Barbarella is still an Italian film. It's still made for De Laurentiis. Well, I will say, I, you know, I haven't seen a whole lot of his stuff. I've seen And God Created Woman, uh, Blood and Roses, his segment from Spirits of the Dead, and Barbarella and this, and I would place this one at the top, I think. Blood and Roses is really good as well, but I still think I'd place this one at the top. Is Blood and Roses... It's a, like a vampire film in a way. It's, uh, it, you could tell that uh, John Rowland was a big fan of it. Let's say that. Oh, okay. Now, I've only seen the American version of Blood and Roses, which is considerably shorter than uh, the, the French original. But it, this does make me want to see his 1973 film, uh, Don Juan, or if Don Juan were a woman, which is also a comedy, <laughs> with Bridget Bardot in the lead. So I could imagine it's kind of similar in maybe tone as this one, and I think that could be pretty enjoyable. It's uproarious. Yeah. I mean, obviously, because this movie is forgotten, you know, it's it's like historical significance is kind of non-existent. But I mm -hmm. did feel like it was kind of ahead of, ahead of its time in terms of being like a genre mashup. You can start to see like the early conventions of like what high school slasher movies would become. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And even like what 80s like sex comedies would start to zero in on. Yeah. 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 I think that even maybe more. And you can almost even see even though like Quentin Tarantino hasn't <clears throat> done anything of this topic, but doing a genre mashup with crime and having lots of humor and the dialogue 
in the nature of the cast as well yeah yeah dialogue as clever as it was like the nature of the cast like you said i could see that playing a actually big role on quentin tarantino i think even the way that the dialogue's handled maybe even a bigger influence than like say Godard, which people a lot of people say that's his influence on the way he does dialogue Mm. but to be honest i don't know how much i actually see that and i uh how we even said how some of the scenes that are just the, the dialogue, the jokey dialogue, and just the end of the cut. You know? Yeah. What did you What did you make of those scenes where Rock Hudson's voice would suddenly become like celestial? Do you think it was just bad dubbing, or did you think there was a reason for why they did it in certain? You moments? know, I don't know because I don't want to say it was just simply bad dubbing, but I did notice there were some parts ADR was employed and it wasn't matched perfectly. And so I don't know if it was just ADR and it didn't go that great or what. So I, you know, I don't know. I noticed like the bad ADR, but there are certain moments where his voice, where it almost becomes non-diegetic sound. Mm-hmm. It yeah. almost seems to purposely leave out room tone. Yeah, I don't know. See, to me, I think what's interesting is I think the movie from the beginning, whether you know Hudson is the killer or not, I think the Vadim goes out of his way to hint to you that this is the killer. Mm-hmm. It's strange because it comes off as first, they're really oddly and irrelevant like details to what he's saying. And it's weird because you don't know what perspective they're coming from. Cause it sounds like it could be internal monologue. Like that's normally how a movie would use it. But Telly Savalas can still hear him. And he's saying like, it's safe to say she had marriage in mind. And it's like, what the hell does that mean? But then, like, when, when, the, when the movie continues and you realize why he killed her, yeah. oh, that's a big clue. When I watch it again, I'll have to pay more attention to that. Yeah, and, and it happens a lot, too, when he, he starts talking about psychology and these different mm-hmm. theories and practices in psychology. Speaking of that particular scene with Telly Savalas, this just made me when you mentioned it, made me think of it as uh has nothing to do with his uh how his voice was recorded but um that scene takes place in uh, rock hudson's home and the police are speaking with him about the murdered girl and his wife is starts to play piano and i can't recall the song she started playing but they cut to her when uh telly Savalas said he thought it was the quarterback which may even lead more into me thinking maybe she does know what's going on yeah, that's a good point. And almost like playing the piano is like uh, it's like her trying to uh, release anxiety in that moment. Yeah. Well, even like the cut to her when he's talking. At the time, I was like, oh, that's kind of an odd thing to cut to. But maybe she knows more than the movie's letting us know. I mean, her, for, in my opinion, her performance is kind of inconsistent because yeah. at certain points she comes off as like the most clueless person in the world. <laughs> Yeah. When she actually the the beginning of that scene where she comes in and says, you know, he says it's really important. Mm-hmm. She just kind of comes off as a ditz. I love her initial introduction. Oh yeah. And how he subverts your expectation, and that is a moment too where there are a lot of these scenes where Rock Hudson is like circling women, and mm-hmm. it employs the POV camera, and that almost felt to me like. He was trying to evoke giallo horror camera techniques, like further letting you in that this is the killer sort of thing because you're you're viewing. Or you could also look at it as like as in circling in for the kill. Yes. yeah. But also if you look at it as 
what I think especially womanizers might look at it when you look at it like having a woman as a conquest that's even like circling in for the kill as well mm-hmm. I mean I mean the term lady killer even if he wasn't literally a lady killer he would still be a lady killer was there anything in the movie that you didn't appreciate or enjoy or you felt like it failed in executing you know you really can't think of anything because everyone in the cast was uniformly good and i liked the way that everyone was used and i there wasn't any parts of the film where i even thought like oh i really wish they weren't going down you know this this track but so I was pretty much with the movie throughout the entire thing without even really thinking of anything I didn't really like. I mean, can you think of anything? The one thing that I, I did, I guess you could argue that because of the environment of Hollywood, it wasn't necessary to do this, but I was kind of always questioning from the beginning like why there was so much sexual pressure on Ponce. I mean, mm-hmm. it's obvious that in high school that is something that happens but in feeling that it executes the adolescent perspective really well in regards to how it com- conveys this presence of sex everywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, everyone is hyper-sexualized. So I don't know if that, just this uni- universe that this film takes place in, that's what causes Ponce to, to have that pressure. But there and... isn't any sense uh, that there's sexual pressure um well, no, being I mean, enacted I, I, on by fellow no, it's students. Like it, it, well, it's almost like um, he's like putting it on himself because, in a way, I think he's almost trying to like find himself and be part of that crowd. Because even in his clothing, like when we see him wear the one denim jacket with like the peace sign on it, and these other other like kind of like hippie emblems that we see on him, I never believe that. Oh, he's a hippie, right? But almost like he's trying to fit in there, and then at the end, once he becomes you know the tiger character, he's finally able to fit in and be himself. Hence why he's now, even in his dress, it's now all of a sudden different. The way he carries himself is completely different. So it's almost like he's trying to find himself, and he's almost putting pressure on himself just to almost fit in, I think. So in this society where everyone is so hypersexualized, the fact that he's not part of it is almost like a kind of like a, a pressure that he puts on himself. I suppose also it's, I guess it's kind of strange that we primarily see him relating to adults at all times yeah. during the movie. Yeah, too. I mean... And, you know, when he is amongst other people his age, he's in it in a position of authority as an assistant football coach. Mm-hmm. So he's still above them. I don't know if I bought that scene where he called that play that won them the game. That, that won the game? <laughs> yeah, I was like, that doesn't seem like the pumps I've just spent an hour and a half getting to know. He knows He knows, he his, knows football. his football. He does know football. He can't play it. He's not big enough. But, man, he's got he's got the brain for it. I mean, I I guess what I was thinking is that um, how being a virgin a lot of times in these kind of settings alienates people from social groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe because we're in the swings of the sexual revolution, that stigma hasn't really materialized yet because you're coming yeah. out of like sexual morality area of the mm-hmm. 50s and mid 60s where you were supposed to wait. Uh, yeah. So maybe that hasn't fully developed um so I don't I don't know that, that that's like a minor thing that I was just mm-hmm. I understand why he's getting boners but well, especially around all these people Well yeah he also like he goes to the high school that has like the most beautiful people in the world like I've never been in a high school that oh, and, playboy and, and models the, are everywhere and 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 the 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 uh 
the 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 most lenient dress code I think I've ever I've ever seen. <laughs> yes. I mean, not only is every you know every female wearing a skirt that essentially covers nothing, but I mean, you had characters wearing completely see-through shirts with nothing on underneath, just roaming around the school. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's one of the more odd schools I think I've ever seen in a film. It, it would be the school that Roger Vadim would be principal of. Instead, it's Roddy McDowell. Yes, but he's he's great in the film. Yeah, he yeah he is fun. And you know, every everyone in this film is completely and totally clueless except for rock hudson ponce de leon and telly savalas everyone else is clueless throughout the entire film keenan Wynn is the yeah the that was a weird era. performance i i mean it's completely and totally inept roddy mcdowell is completely and totally inept his secretary is an is inept i mean even angie dickinson in a way is an inept i mean she's completely and totally played by rock hudson oh yeah to do what he wants her to do that I mean, everyone other than those three are completely clueless. Angie Dickinson is completely naive. I mean, yeah. I will say that I think she does really well with what she's given, but she kind of has the most thankless role of anybody in the in the main cast mm-hmm. yeah. because she's kind of just there as like an object to see through. Uh, She's only she's only there at the expense of Ponce's character arc. Yeah, but I think since uh, Vadim gives her that scene at the end, at the funeral, and the funeral kind of like makes up for that. Like she's even become more of a, like a full fledged person, I guess you could say, uh, due to Rock Hudson's uh, antics. I kind of have a general issue with the like sexual politics of the movie. Just yeah. that if we really wanted to get into it this is a film that would perfectly fit that feminist theory of like the male gaze dominating mm-hmm. cinema and how it objectifies women and women just, yeah, become... but I think a lot of that also has a lot of that has to do with Vadim in general. Oh yeah. Well, I, you know, I mentioned before we started that I rewatched yeah, Barbara the, the Barbarella credits and that's all that is. Um, that, yeah. And that's like, well, when we were talking, when we first planned this movie, I was telling about that uh, Vadim poster that I saw for a movie called night games. Mm, where mm-hmm. the movie was sold on the fact that he has amazing looking women in his film and his films and he shoots them really well. Yes. That that criticism seems to have stayed with him his entire career from the beginning. Yeah. Well, I, that's probably one of the reasons why out of all those French directors from the late 50s on, he's probably I don't say he's the least respected, but in a way he kind of is. I could see that. I only really am aware of a handful of his movies, everything else he did. I know he remade and God created women in the 80s. Yeah, which is... Is it not good? I seemingly remember saying that as a little kid and being bored by it, but I don't remember enough about it. <clears throat> and I think the fact that he was married to, like, Bridget Bardot and Jane Fonda and he had the relationship with Catherine Deneuve. And if you look at the other women he married, they all look like that. I mean, they all have that same look. Even the ones that aren't famous, or you know, famous to most people. I mean, he is—he is—he uh, is the definition of a libertine. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. But what I, what I, you know, I, I don't like how it depicts women. But mm-hmm. I guess it's excusable in the sense that the perspective that the movie takes—that's just naturally what's going to happen when yeah. you're viewing the movie through the eyes of a teenage boy. You know, not that that makes that a good thing, but no. But even still, I mean, you're 
viewing it through the eyes of someone watching it in 2014, which is going to be different than someone who's making it in 1971. Just like, you know, watching King Kong, there are scenes when they're on Skull Island that you probably go, ooh, I don't know. I don't know about his mm-hmm. depiction of yeah. uh, minorities there, but that's also a film that was made in the early 30s. Well, you, you could... <laughs> You can make the same criticism for Peter Jackson's movie. Well, yeah, too. I know. Um, but I, I think sometimes that kind of criticism, where we put our 21st century sensibilities on a film that was made, you know, in some cases nearly 100 years ago, and in this case nearly you know 50 years ago, it's kind of hard to put that. I mean, because times change, politics change. Oh, no, I, I agree. I, I think... In this case, where maybe it comes a little more valid, though, is because Roger Vadim directed it. Yeah. If I wasn't aware of the fact that that's something that a lot of people feel about the majority of his films, because you, you could say that by objectifying women, he's exploiting the the hypocrisy of the sexual revolution and what it's mm-hmm. all about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think with this one, you can definitely say that to a certain extent. Yes, I agree. But what I what I do find interesting about it, at least in relationship to other, I guess, cheerleading type of films like mm-hmm. this, this I don't yeah. think this is as uh, pure a cheerleading film as some of you know the other '70s movies. But the fact that all of the really sexual, sensual scenes are centered around a forty-year-old woman. Mm-hmm. I do yeah. think is kind of unique. Maybe I'm wrong there. Obviously, you can think of The Graduate as being yeah. something that could have inspired this to some extent. I like this movie a lot more than The Graduate. I think, yeah, I do too. Mainly because I just, I don't believe anybody is like a real person in that movie, except for <laughs> Anne Bancroft. But, uh, but, I, but I did feel... Oh, this is sort of transgressive to some extent in that you have all of these young, beautiful women, which is why I think, in addition to other reasons, why this movie would never be made today, is you have all these young, really young, beautiful women, and he spends more time sort of objectifying Angie Dickinson's sexuality than he does any of these younger women. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he does does plenty of that too, but they're not... uh, (laughs) That's it's more of a a fleeting kind of thing than really what, dedicating a lot of time. One thing though, Vadim, I think has like an upskirt fetish. Yeah, like there are quite a that few upskirt. A lot in the film, <laughs> but all oh, throughout the entire film, even at the when when he when his uh, like Vespa scooter becomes this like cool looking motorcycle at the end, and uh, he picks up the just randomly picks up that one girl off the street and her getting on his motorcycle even there. I want to talk about the ending because in in watching the movie, what I noticed is that up until the car sequence on that on the pier, the entire movie is constructed of a series of hard cuts. Yeah, he cross cuts, he montages, he cuts away and cuts back. You know, he impl- employs different styles of editing. You know, and that's that's something else that maybe we could talk about is it, I do think it's an interesting movie and it's like a confluence of different ideas and aesthetics. But once the car, once they hit the water, uh, it's the only time that a dissolve is used in the film. 
And it mm-hmm. made me wonder, is what we're seeing at the funeral, I don't think you could support this because I think there are scenes that don't involve Ponce at the end, but yeah. is it all in like a dream of his? Is Well, that's, I'm going to say no, because we do get the stuff with the wife going to Brazil and we do have scenes just with Telly Savalas and Scotty where mm-hmm. they're actually talking about the case. I will say though, this is a movie that's not concerned with being narratively coherent <laughs> I, no, I will say no. i actually will say that the dissolve to me is saying what we just saw may or may not have may may or may not have what actually happened i thought that about they that came too. to this agreement that i'm going to brazil and ponce you know i'm going to become you essentially well he edits that sequence really strangely too where you're almost seeing two alternate scenarios happening simultaneously or you're seeing what happened previous intercut with what's happening in the moment. Or, like, actually what I was thinking is that this is what Hut- Rock Hudson was thinking. This is the other way that this could play out with me killing Ponce de Leon. No, yeah, that, that was just something I thought about because it's a dissolve that calls a lot of attention to itself. Like it's a very stylized dissolve with the yeah, water no, and the I, reflection of the lights. And yeah, I see the ending is that these two guys came to this agreement. This is what the agreement that they came to. Mm. Now, the only and thing then, about that though is, yes. is then why does Ponce's opinion of the situation suddenly change then? Because before he even knows that he's killing the girls, when he finds out he's sleeping with them, He's pretty disturbed by that. But all he says, like, once he finds out that he's killing the girls, all he says is, did you have, you know, did you have to kill them? Right. And Rock Hudson's Which makes, leads me to believe that wasn't that, perfect. he wasn't like, ooh, this is like a big deal. It was more like, well, can you have just done something else with him? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so entirely possible because... Almost understand, he almost understands it, but like, weren't there other course, you know, options available to you at this time? And if not, then okay, then I understand why you had to do it. It would fall into the logic of the film. It just, in some ways, it feels like a betrayal in Ponce's character then to me. Because mm-hmm. he does seem to be the most level-headed, rationally-minded person. Oh, from the very, yeah, from the very beginning. Yeah. And so for him to accept that seems to kind of abandon that idea then to some extent. Especially but with then, the outcome of what happens to... Yeah, but I, then I guess you could say that it's... Ponce is a level-headed, reasonable person at the end, but through the influence of tiger just like in paradise lost the influence of the devil Mm. is what caused this to happen so then in that respect it's a very pessimistic film movie's just about hustle without hassle seems like it (laughs) um i don't think the movie is appreciated purely just kind of like on a technical level as well as it should be cuz i i noticed from watching it that the narrative is very loose but it's much better constructed in that it it really lays out a lot of groundwork and foreshadows quite a bit from the beginning and throughout the film i mean it took me a while to realize but like the opening credit sequence all the he introduces all of the pretty maids in mm-hmm. that you know those are the Indeed. those are the women that ponce is mesmerized by yeah. Um, he's even got in the introduction of Andy Angie Dickinson's character, which I love her. Um, <laughs> what is it? How do you spell it? Like kind of thing. Yeah. Which to me, I 
that is a moment where the movie felt really real to me and that like that is such a true honest depiction of like somebody trying to release tension yeah but there's even a moment there's a cut where he uh he focuses on the character that she's with at the en- at the funeral at the end looking at her then in that scene yeah you're right. yeah i think you could watch this and get a feeling that especially if you know that he has complete creative control that he's just doing kind of whatever the hell he wants. Mm-hmm. But I think his staging is a little more sophisticated than that. Like, I think he had a good idea of where he was going. Yeah, like he had way more planned out than than what it appears in a way. As loose as the film is. And his editing, I think, I don't know that I call it sophisticated, but it's, I mean, it's it's unique. I mean, he he'll merge a lot of diegetic sounds together like an ambulance siren siren and a telephone ringer and that's how he transitions in and out of scenes he cuts from a comedic timing there's i can think of the example where somebody mentions the leg and we cut to rock hudson's bare legs <laughs> uh, yeah yeah he's always taking what initially seems like really mundane dialogue and turning it into the punchline of a visual gag like he does that all the time with Telly Savalas and Keaton and Wynn, where he always ends up in traffic control. Yeah. After and, his and goof. he's the worst traffic cop ever. Well, he's yeah. He's, I mean, he's the worst cop, cop ever. Man. He's a yeah. racist, like sexist. Yeah, well, uh, uh, his, I like his uh his reasoning why the quarterback couldn't have done it. Oh right, when they're walking out on the football field, yeah. isn't it? What does he say? Something along the lines of how he, the way he plays football. Yeah, it's, it's because of his arm. Yeah, he something very, uh, very uh, not politically correct right. in regards yes. to the yeah. the African American quarterback, and that's why he knows he couldn't have done it. Well, even the when he's walking down the hall and he pulls out his gun, oh, it's like yeah, the person's already that. dead. Like, and and then he stops him and he's like, "You yeah. hold it right there," and they're like, "No, no, no." It's like, why did you even stop that kid? Like, what? Yeah. Uh, yeah he's he's great i don't i can't i guess now that we're talking about it i can understand why he would accept the role but while watching it i was thinking like this seems like something kind of above this or something to some extent well i mean roddy mcdowell i mean he's still doing the planet of the eight movies at this point and i mean he's got a very supporting role I don't want to say it's a minor role as the principal of the high school, but he's not in it a whole lot. I mean, when he's in it, he's always very funny. Well, he's got one line of dialogue he's got to memorize. It's probably the easiest paycheck oh, yeah. he's ever received. <laughs> I like when uh, at the, the halftime of the football game, and you know, there four students have been killed, and <laughs> one of them was a really nice cheerleader. And I'm <laughs> sure they're same. cheering us on from heaven now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, and when he says, like, we've lost two A's and a B... <laughs> I thought that one was funny too. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I thought the film was very. <clears throat> now, Scotty's character's name is Folo, F O L L O. What could that be a reference to? I have no clue, but that's such an un- unusual name. I don't either. It seems made up because he's never addressed directly by name in the film. No, but I've, I'm, I imagine it's in the end credits. You know, yes. Folo. I, I did like Telly Savalas's partners always talking up rock hudson's character yeah you're just jealous of him he's a great guy right? <laughs> yeah but i like how everything that he could do like you know rock hudson's character he's like a karate instructor he's this and this. he's got a purple heart but it's funny how 
he's able to like use those different elements to like really expand his character. Mm-hmm. He like he's a different person at, at as the football coach than he is as the guidance counselor. Oh, oh, and then oh, when he becomes the killer, he's a different character as well. Oh yeah, he's much more uh, like he's like l- like legitimately scary mm-hmm. when he's getting ready to kill someone. You don't want life. You want Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's wonder- wonderful. <laughs> no, he's he is quite good in the movie. I think it's like a really underappreciated performance. Like it's one of the best yeah. Rock Hudson performances there probably is because it's so different from anything else. And I mean, it's clearly playing on his persona, but I think he he takes it beyond that. It's a lot more than that. You know, Telly Savalas, it's interesting because he's basically playing... He's Kojak. He's Kojak before he's Kojak. Yeah, Kojak, I mean. yeah. And well, there's even part... And he and in his role as uh, Sam Searcher, he's almost, he almost has an oral fixation where he's almost always got something in his mouth. Be it a cigarette, a pretzel stick, and it made me think <laughs> of the, the dum-dum lollipop. Yes. And I haven't seen much Kojak, but when he's in interrogations in Kojak, is he always, like, playing with things? I don't know. Because they always introduce him fooling around with the chemistry sets. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know because I've never seen an episode of Kojak. Oh, okay. So I'll have to actually look for one to, to see if that's actually how he does it. But from everything I know about Kojak, he seems to be doing Kojak. Mm-hmm. But his his role is a little strange in that he doesn't really have that much to do. No, but he, I think from almost from the very beginning, he knows Rock Hudson's done it. It's almost like Telly Savalas would have been able to solve this case much quicker had everyone else in the school not been complete, I don't say looming tunes, but completely clueless about everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, they offer no help at all to him. Keenan wins there to help him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But even like... Uh, he's hiding in the bathroom. The, he's waiting the, for the... the... One, well, the, that scene where he's hiding in the bathroom, the, the one police officer that's got the the secretary and they're trying to time how long it would take to take someone from the chemistry lab to the bathroom that is like total like bad police work that a bl- bad police officer would have thought of or like keenan wins whole thing where he's like oh you know a criminal will always go back to where he did his crime which is why he's always hanging out at the in the school do you have any insight into how this relates to like the sexual politics of its time in any way I mean, we really don't know any of the other male students. We know these, what are they, like, nine female students. And we know Ponce. Who we we know very little about, as it is yeah. anyway. I mean, they're defined by their attributes and their race, but, often. And, they're, and these nine female students and their eagerness, really, to have sex. And even when they're interrog- when Telly Savalas is trying to interrogate them about the first girl that was murdered, that's all they seem to even talk about then. Yeah, the only thing that was strange about those scenes were, um, I I don't doubt that other students are lusting after them, but it doesn't really ever betray that. It always seems like they are completely intended upon sleeping with Tiger McDrew. Yeah, so I don't know if this has some some sort of, adult because even with like angie dickinson and ponce de leon yes about kind of like a, the predatory nature of adults not just in like 
things regarding sex, but just the predatory nature in general. We were kind of talking about with Punishment Park, how it's a film about the older generation wanting to kill and eat the young just because they don't want the change to incur. Yes. To some extent, this movie is a celebration of statutory rape. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's mutual statutory rape, but it's statutory rape. I mean, even when Rock Hudson is talking to Angie Dickinson about it, she even seems like, well, if it's good, if it's good for the students. Yeah, right. Yeah. I suppose there'd be a little whistling while we work. That was a great line. <laughs> His line de- deliveries are so perfect. I, yeah. I, I don't, I'm having a hard time articulating as to why. It's just, he is so charismatic. It's just one of those performances where, like, he gets everything right. Yeah, and it's so unusual, I think, in the context of a movie like this, to where you would get something that good, I think. And it's almost like, I think, like, if they, for whatever reason, had to shoot the entire movie completely over again with the exact same cast, I don't know if he could have done it as well. Because mm. he does get everything so perfect that it's almost impossible to do something that perfect twice. I mean, even the fact that a lot of his audio, his dialogue is dubbed... It almost intensifies his performance even more so. It's almost like it almost works in his favor. When his facials are so great. Oh yeah. Oh. I mean his look, it, like his with the mustache and the hair and the side I mean he looks completely perfect for this character. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about it cuz right now I'm looking at the 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 poster for the film is even how the film was sold. Have you seen the poster art for the film, the American poster art? Is it the one with the girl on the desk and the no, like, football no. plays on the chalkboard? No, I'm going to go ahead and send it to you. And this is all the poster that I've always been familiar with. For those that are curious? It's at Wikipedia. But I want to say, you know that, um, that book that I was telling you about, that trash book that has the one Roger Badham poster? And I think the poster for this is in it, too. And oh, okay. this is the one. That... Yes. All right, I've seen this one, yeah. Okay, it is totally sold on the looks of the nine females. And then a center image with the nine girls holding him up on, Rock Hudson up on their shoulders, wearing t-shirts with his face on it. I mean, even the selling of the film is very odd. And it's almost like this is a film. I mean, it's almost like knowingly this is a movie, and this is how we're selling it to you. There's something strange, though, even though they're very sexualized, the image mm-hmm. in the center is kind of like innocent. Yeah. He's like our foster dad or something. Like yeah. <laughs> Can you read the tagline? It says Roger Vadim, the director who discovered Bridget Bardot, Catherine Deneuve, and Jane Fonda now brings you the American high school girl and Rock Hudson. <laughs> Was he considered like a sex icon at his time you know, in his day? I yeah, mean, not... yeah, yeah, he was. He was I know he was really thought of as I don't want to say like a sex icon, but a uh, it's kind of like a as a dreamboat, I guess, is a better way of saying it. Especially in those like '60s comedies, mm-hmm. like you know, Pillow Talk and things like that. I guess maybe that's why when he event when it was eventually learned that he was gay, he was gay, it was, it was such a big, big deal. deal. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it would have been a big deal anyway, just because he was a major star and the fact that he was also dying of AIDS. Yeah, but uh, I think his. Uh, you know the just his the way that people always saw him well he's kind of this i mean especially in this film he's a figure of like hyper masculinity i mean yes yeah. well i think people really didn't believe 
the way that he is in those Doris Day movies is how he was in real life. Mm, mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like to speak on? No, I don't. I think. Um, is there anything that you can think of? Mm, not anything that would just be completely random and probably something I've already talked about. All right. So, so I mean, we, oh uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I was going to say, so how many jive turkeys are you thinking of giving up? I think four and a half. Okay. I think I'm going to go five. Ooh, you're going. Yeah. The complete turkey. Yeah. I think I'm giving a complete turkey for this one. The Thanksgiving turkeys, I like to call it. Now we had this conversation kind of off mic last yeah. episode where we spoke about how rating films is very difficult. So is this a five purely just because you really enjoy the film? Or do you think it's a, you know, it's a canonical masterpiece? No, that, yeah, I know, no, that's, I don't know. Like, kind of like how we talked about how, you know, you have to actually let things kind of sink in for a while. Because I watched the movie today, so it's almost like I'm still on the, on the high of watching it. Uh, in that regard will i still go oh it's a five-star movie even next week i don't know um i know i don't ever see me going dipping lower than it being a four-star movie yeah but that's that is that that's like for a pure entertainment or is that you really think yeah i think i might be going with pure entertainment because i thought the film was incredibly entertaining uh five stars on pure entertainment value although i don't understand why it's not talked about more and why it's as obscure as it is what do you think about people that write and say that this is one of the craziest films they've ever seen see i didn't think it was that crazy i think they're just i think they're going in on strictly like you said how it's (laughs) a celebration of statutory rape i think that's where i think people go this movie's crazy because we have these two teachers and they have absolutely no problem sleeping with their students i don't even think it's like oh he kills them as well i think it's more like these two teachers including a female teacher are doing this and they don't think anything of it and they even like in a way talk about how it's beneficial for the students i think that's where they kind of get caught in like wow this movie's crazy i assume that it comes from viewing it out of context yeah yeah although that seems somewhat strange to me too because these kinds of situations where teachers sleeping with students, so on, you talked about school shootings, they become cultural norms. Yeah. I guess the thought of a movie being made 40 years ago that contains these things and it being shocking to people. Yeah. And being a comedy and playing it comedically. Absolutely. Um, is so shocking that people just, you know, announce this as one of the strangest movies ever made. And, you know, the the thing that you mentioned, one of the funny lines in the film about the one guy coming up to Ponce and asking if there's football practice today, and he says, we don't have practice on a day when there's a murder. It's strange. I mean, that's a very funny line, but the way that we kind of look at school shootings today, I wouldn't be surprised if that's it. If that's something that actually happens, we call off practice when, and then we're back the next day. Yeah. I mean, because... I mean, news cover. I mean, these happen. School shootings now seem like they happen like once a month, and the news coverage for them has become more minor and minor and minor every every one. So, is that the same at the school itself? I don't know. 
because like you when i when i watched the film i didn't find it to be i wasn't shocked by anything that i watched i thought no. the way that it depicted sex was very tame yeah yeah i agree i don't i don't know that i'm comfortable calling this an exploitation film either no i don't I, cuz i don't think i don't think he's necessarily Vadim as the filmmakers necessarily exploiting any of those topics. It still kind of reeks to some extent of uh, a studio being behind it. I don't know how else to explain mm-hmm. that. Where it it doesn't feel like down and dirty enough. To no, really... no. I mean it's too slick. But I also don't know if that's just because you know obviously the budget he was given, and then you know his, his talent and in general, just Vadim's talent in general. Now, for anyone that uh, you know hasn't had the opportunity to see the film and would like to uh it will be airing on turner classic movies at 12 30 a.m eastern standard time on friday june 27th oh okay so coming up pretty soon and that's due to the fact that rock hudson is currently their star of the month star of the, oh okay well i would recommend people checking it out dvring it yep and I know that it's also available through Warner Archives on DVD, and you can watch it through their uh, yeah, streaming but a, services. But it's a burned disc. Yeah, it's a burned disc. They don't make press. Oh, uh, yes, that's correct. Okay. So I would of, say uh, stick with the TCM for Yeah, and it kind of, I found that, find that upsetting because I doubt we'll see a Blu-ray release of it no. anytime soon. I mean, the copy we had was, I thought it looked fairly good like yeah I mean, no it did yeah for what I mean, it is i thought it looked good yeah but yeah very uh i think it kind of uh exceeded my expectations absolutely so should we move on to the listener's trivia question yeah okay so we're still in june so the question is still well, the original tahoe studios godzilla film series is divided into three distinct eras what are the names and corresponding years associated with the three eras and uh, we'll be revealing the winner of June's question on the next episode. Now, what are we going to do if no one ends up sending an answer in? Then, we'll, then they'll never know the answer. We won't even tell them. We'll just move on to the next question. We'll just move on to the next question, here. Yeah. The trivia question has not been very isn't, successful. Hasn't taken off? No. I don't know why. I know there are 400 of you that listen to this show every episode. Because they're like, it feels like homework. Uh, but you can't be bothered to send in answers. I shouldn't say that. 398 of you listen and don't send in answers. There's two of you I still that don't do. Think but... it's a, I still don't think this is a hard question. No, I, I don't either. I and mean, and even like if you if you don't want to have to like listen and then type in the question, you can go to the website and in the episode notes, it's it's there. You can just copy it from the show into Google. So that's even it makes it even easier for you. I mean, here's the big thing: just go to Wikipedia, put in Godzilla film series. They're there. <laughs> so if you feel um, compelled to do so, send your answers to filmjive at gmail dot com. Like Andy yeah. said, we're gonna announce the winner on the next episode, and then we'll you know have a new question, and you'll get to pick a movie that we're gonna talk about probably next year. But <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Well, we've pretty much set our calendar for. Yeah. May- Up until the end of October. Maybe December, I suppose. Yeah, we don't have anything true. scheduled for December. Maybe that can be listener pick month or something. And, and and I'll be honest, I know we set the calendar, but I think it's a pretty exciting slate of films. Yeah. You you can see let's just see, this is episode seventy two. Yeah. You can only see I think up to episode seventy seven on the on the website. Okay. 
Although I constantly am changing my picks. So oh, really? All right. Yeah, so I don't know. So Andy, what are we looking at next episode? Well, the next episode we're kind of kind of continuing with a famous director little scene film. With the next episode we'll be looking at Charlie Chaplin's final film, A Countess from Hong Kong, which was released in 1967 and starring Marlon Brando and Sophia Loren. I'm excited about seeing this one. I'm moderately excited. I'm excited because some people absolutely hate the film, and that's what I think. I want to, and, and I've read things where people say it is completely and totally um, like incompetent, and I think that's what I'm kind of excited about to see if that's true. Yeah, I mean, you would think that, given the talent involved, that you, it would be competent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, although this is, it's in that weird period of Brando's career where he like didn't care anymore or something. So. <laughs> I do feel bad though, like if so- Sophia Loren is like giving it her all, and she's stuck in between these two guys. That one's, you know, one foot in the in the in the dirt, and the other one <laughs> is like, I don't give a fuck, you know, bring me a hot dog, and she's, you know, working really. She's hard. giving it her all. Yeah, well, that's true. I do. From what I've read, he Charlie Chaplin does have a small role in the film as well. Yeah, I've um, I, I've seen some uh, screen caps from the film. It's all a minute. Look at this time. Look at this kind of stuff that he's been doing. Sixty-seven accounts from Hong Kong. Sixty-eight candy. Sixty-nine burn. I like burn. Burn's a good movie. And then was it like the Nightcombers? And then yeah, the Nightcombers and then Godfather. Godfather. Yeah, I don't even know what the hell the Nightcombers is. A British horror film. Mm-hmm. Directed by um... Michael Winner. Yep. That film sounds like a winner. You can listen to Andy on the Stephen Andy Meet Batman podcast. And keep up with his film watching and letterboxed. Uh, film Jive can be found at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. And you can get in touch with us by sending your emails to filmjive at gmail.com. So thank you for listening to the Film Jive podcast. Until next time, keep on jiving.